If you have your Bible with you, I'd invite you to turn with me this morning to the book of Isaiah, uh, Isaiah chapter 52. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, if you don't have a copy of God's Word, we do have some Bibles on the back cart that you can use, or you can simply uh, follow along uh, in the bulletin insert that you find in the bulletin you grabbed when you came in. Today brings us to the end of a uh, month-long series in the month of December, in this season of Advent, looking at the servant songs of Isaiah. These prophetic poems about the coming of the Messiah. And we've already determined, uh, if you weren't here prior, we've already determined that that Messiah, that this servant that is spoken of, is no other than Jesus of Nazareth. And I've said this before and I'll say it for the last time this morning, Isaiah, uh, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has been painting for God's people for all time a portrait of the person and the work of Jesus Christ through these poems, through these songs. And he's doing this hundreds of years before Jesus will be born in Bethlehem. It's one of the amazing realities, one, one of the amazing things that, uh, that God's word testifies to itself. And today, as we turn to Isaiah 52 and 53, it's not just, uh, it's not just the final touches of the painting uh, that are finished up along the edges. Actually, Psalm 52, excuse me, Isaiah 52 and 53 are actually the very heart of this portrait that Isaiah has been painting for us these past three weeks. It's this song today that we're going to look at that makes the picture of Jesus overwhelmingly complete. As one commentator said rightly, this, is, th- this passage that I'm about to read to you is the Mount Everest of Messianic prophecy the Mount Everest of Messianic prophecy. It's the longest of all the servant songs. It's frequently quoted in the New Testament, and it's the most familiar to all of you, to those of you who have grown up in the church or who have been in the church for quite some time. And because of that, it's not intimidating at all to preach it. Not at all. No, this is one of those... um, Read it and just sit down and shut up, Nate. You don't need to say any more. What more could be said? How could it be said better? And while I considered doing that this morning, and maybe you would wish that I would do that when this is all said and done, I decided not to do that. But to spend a few minutes meditating on these verses, trusting that the Lord will use them to draw our hearts closer to him, to help us marvel at the person and work of Jesus. It's a promise of of epic proportions, and it's one that is an invitation to marvel at the magnitude of his love for us. And so I want to encourage you all to listen carefully, but especially those of you who have heard these words a hundred, maybe a thousand times. 
Slow down and listen to them anew and feel the gravity of what Isaiah is saying, of what the Lord is saying to his church. If you're able, I'd invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's word. Isaiah chapter 52, we're going to begin at verse 13 of Isaiah 52, and we'll read down through verse 12 of 53, the entirety of the chapter. Listen as I read. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up. He grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. And he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that, is, that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. 
Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Now maybe you're sitting there this morning after hearing that passage thinking, come on, Nate, where is the cuteness of a baby in a manger? Where's the beauty of angels singing on a hillside? The quaintness of shepherds gathering in a stable? After all, Nate, it's the week of Christmas. Well, first of all, none of that which I just stated was nearly as romantic as we in our Christmas nostalgia and sentimentality make it to be. That stable was cold and dirty. Those shepherds were sweaty and stinky after days of working in the field. While the angels were indeed glorious, their arrival was absolutely terrifying. But beyond that, you're right, this passage that I just read to you, the Sunday before Christmas, is not silent night. (laughs) It's not the little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Instead, this this is a passage about a hard life culminating in a night of jeers and screams and pain and blood and abandonment and the silence of death. But I present it to you this morning because this is Christmas joy. This is Christmas joy. The cross is the reason for the cradle. That baby born in Bethlehem was a baby that was born to die. What we find here in Isaiah 52 and 53 is a job description that no one in their right mind would ever sign up for. And yet Jesus did. And Jesus was in his right mind because Jesus, as we looked at last week, was the obedient servant who for the love of the Father and the love of the people that the Father had given to him was obedient to the point of death, even death, on a cross. And so I hope it's okay that we're here this morning. I think it's good that we're here this morning. Many of you know as well as I do that there are volumes and volumes that have been written about this one passage. Indeed, I know of some preachers who did a whole Advent series on the five stanzas that we find here. Five weeks, five different stanzas. Instead, this morning, we're just going to spend a few minutes on each stanza as we begin, just begin to digest the beauty of the servant Savior, Jesus The structure of the passage, you can probably figure out that obviously the verses and the chapter headings are are not inspired, 
And so it's a little bit confusing because the passage bleeds into two chapters, but the five stanzas are basically in verses of, or, or in, couple, in sections of three. So 52, 13 through 15 is stanza one, one through three, four through six, seven through nine, and then the last stanza has four verses, 10 through 13. And so I want us to frame these five stanzas, these five, uh, I'm calling them mini-sermons, five mini-sermons through five words that describe the Savior, the servant, the baby born in Bethlehem, Jesus of Nazareth. And the five words are these, successful, scorned, a substitute, sacrificed, and satisfied. And yes, they're all S's. First of all, stanza number one, the servant Jesus will be successful. The servant Jesus will be successful. Every once in a while, I'll catch my wife while she's reading a book that I know she has just received or just bought. She'll be reading the end of the book. Right? She'll be reading the last chapter before she's even started the first one. I know some of you probably do that same type thing. I don't do that with books, but I do do that with, and I think I've shared this before, I do do that with, with sports things that I have recorded. I will watch a Seahawks game, but I will check the score before I watch it. In fact, if I've recorded the game, I'll check the score. If they win, I'll watch it. If they don't win, I won't watch it, because what's the point? But if I see that they win and I watch it, it's such a wonderful, stress-free watching. <laughs> because the end of the story is certain. I know what's going to happen. And that's where Isaiah, that's where the Lord himself begins in this song. After announcing the servant, he's introducing the servant. Behold, look, give attention to Give attention to my servant. He declares the success that the servant is going to enjoy. My servant shall act wisely. That can also be translated, and many of you see this in your ESV Bibles. There's a little footnote at the bottom. It can be translated, my servant shall prosper. He will be exalted. He will be high and lifted up. Verse 15, kings shall shut their mouths because of him. Indeed, he will sprinkle many nations. Well, what does that mean? That's kind of a curious phrase. He will sprinkle many nations. It's actually a phrase that's steeped in Old Testament Jewish ritual. In the instructions to the priests for the cleansing of lepers, we read in Leviticus 14, 7, and he, that is the priest, shall sprinkle it seven times on him who is to be cleansed. Therefore, whether it be blood, whether it be water, whether it be oil, this was a priestly activity signifying purification. 
And the priest himself had to be prepared and pure in order to do this sprinkling. So when the servant Jesus is spoken of as sprinkling the nations, it is the image of his redeeming work spreading to all peoples. That was the theme of the second servant song that we looked at. In other words, he will get it done. He will be successful. And it is finished, is what he declared. And at the right hand of the throne of God is where he is, exalted and making his enemies a stool for his feet. While the certainty with which he accomplished our salvation now becomes the certainty that he will return to make all things right and to rule forever and ever. The servant, Jesus, will be successful. You see, it's important for God's people to hear this. It's important for us to be reminded of this, to not lose sight of this, particularly, Isaiah knows, because for a time, it won't look like success. Glory is the end result, but the road to glory is a road of suffering. And frankly, the success, therefore, is a success that looks shocking. And that leads us to the next stanza. The servant Jesus will be scorned. He will be successful, but verses one through three, he will be scorned. You and I know that we are a a people increasingly who judge by what we see. And we've always done it to some extent. This is who we are. This is human nature. But even more so in our modern visual society of of photographs and social media, even, even in our modern society of fear and terrorism, right? We call it profiling. How many of us, when we're sitting waiting for a plane and and we take an extra look at that bearded Arab man in traditional garb waiting for the same flight that we do? We judge by what we see. We ought not to, but we do. We hear the prophet Isaiah speaks (laughs) of a future Arab man who won't be suspect as much as he'll simply be ignored, irrelevant, disregarded. Because the servant Jesus that Isaiah speaks of, he simply doesn't look the part of being significant. He won't have the pedigree, but instead he'll grow up, as our passage says, he'll grow up from dry ground Low and humble conditions. Can anything good come from Nazareth, they would say, when he walked the earth? He won't have the looks. No no glow around his head, no perfectly bleached robe. Instead, quite ordinary. No beauty, 
that we should desire him. He won't have acceptance or social clout. Rather, he'll be despised and rejected by men. Unimpressive. Under the radar. And when he does get noticed, when Jesus the servant does get noticed, he's misunderstood. He's not acknowledged for who he truly is. That's the servant Jesus. That's the baby born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth. The servant Jesus will be scorned. I think we at times can minimize this aspect of Jesus' life, of Jesus' humiliation in coming to earth and leaving the glory of heaven and being made flesh for us. Jesus was a man. He wasn't immune to the jeers. Jesus, like you and, man, you and me, he, he desired to be understood. He desired to be accepted. He desired to be seen. These things are at the core of who we are as human beings, and yet his life was a life of suffering in this way, which is why, as we looked at last week, which is why he needed to continually, morning by morning, awaken with the Father to be reminded of who he is, because no one else would acknowledge it. He was scorned. A man of sorrows, our passage says, acquainted with grief, feeling the despisement of others, knowing the darkness of our own hearts. That's part of the beauty of the incarnation, of Jesus coming as flesh for us. These things are not just passing feelings for Jesus or seasons, but his life was characterized by this. He became this so that we could turn to him when we feel like this. It's a fine point of application here in the middle. Those feelings, those times when we are in dark places, when we are feeling misunderstood, when we are not seen at all, the servant Jesus who was scorned for us knows what it's like. He sees you. He carries it with you. And it's a rejection that will lead him to the cross of disfigurement, right? Verse 14 hinted at it already in the first stanza. Many were astonished at you. His appearance marred. People at the end, they didn't even want to look at him. He was such a despised mess. Cursed by hanging on a Roman cross. They were disgusted. And the cross will appear as if it's the greatest defeat, but it's the wisdom of God to accomplish our salvation, to give us a substitute. And that's the next stanza. The servant Jesus will be our substitute. 
The servant Jesus will be successful. The servant Jesus will be scorned. The servant Jesus will be our substitute. The heart of the passage and the heart of the gospel that you and I believe and that we proclaim here this morning is that Jesus is our substitute. Penal substitutionary atonement. That's the fancy theological phrase to say he took our place. He took our punishment. Notice the repetition in this stanza in verses four through six. Surely he has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The famous painter Rembrandt in his classic work, The Raising of the Cross, he painted himself into the picture. And so there you see these Roman soldiers and you see the crowd jeering and mocking as Jesus bloody is being hung on the cross. And there is a man in a painter's hat helping Jesus be raised to his death. Because Rembrandt wanted to say, I was there. And Isaiah speaks to us in this passage as if we were there. Because in a sense, we were there. The substitution of the servant must be personalized in order for it to have its effect in our lives. That's where it begins. With acknowledgement of our part in his need to die. The acknowledgement that we have turned from our shepherd, from our creator, each to his own way. Because we want to be independent sheep. We want to make our own boundaries. We want to make our own rules. But the gospel says that if we lay this attempt aside, and not just once, but every day. I wake up every day having to lay aside the rules I want to make and the boundaries I want to give, every day laying those attempts aside and turning to the servant, then and only then are all the benefits of this substitutionary death transferred to us. Peace through his chastisement, healing through his wounds. A new record before God a new heart to live for God. Indeed, new creations born by the Spirit. Jesus came to be your substitute. Jesus is the only remedy for human misery. He's the sin bearer for those who can't deal with their guilt alone. Every other religion, every other religion says earn it, pay for it, work it out. And the gospel of Christmas proclaims believe that he earned it for you. Do we really believe that? Do we live in that? Oh, I hope we do but I know we don't, because <laughs> I don't every day. Which is why I have one message up here, week after week after week after week. 
one message, the gospel. Believe it. It's all I got. It's all we need. The servant will be our substitute. And the next verses build on that. Stanza number four, the servant Jesus will be sacrificed. Successful, scorned, substitute, and now sacrificed. In light of wandering sheep, what does Jesus do? He sends his own lamb. The image of a sheep was powerful to an agrarian society that knew how dumb sheep could be. And not only that, but but sheep in their culture, in their time and place, they knew that atonement came through the shedding of blood, through the sacrifice of a lamb. And so when the Lamb of God comes on the scene, it is the innocence of his blood that becomes our payment once and for all. And as this passage extols, and as we looked at extensively last week, those of you who are here, the Lamb gets carried to his sacrifice, screaming and wiggling and bleeding the whole way. The Lamb of God went willingly, quietly, obediently for the sake of you and for the sake of me. Hebrews 10, 11 and 12, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. A sinless, submissive, final sacrifice. The servant Jesus will be sacrificed. And then finally, last stanza, last point. The servant Jesus will be satisfied. This is verses 10 through 13. The servant Jesus will be satisfied. Really in this last description, the the song comes full circle from where we began. Notice a word that occurs in each verse of this last stanza. It's the word soul. The Hebrew word nefesh, his innermost self is being poured out in an offering, verse 10, in anguish, verse 11, unto death, verse 12. This is the servant's all-encompassing life's work. This baby born in Bethlehem, when he finishes the hard road that is laid out for him, he will be satisfied. His soul will be poured out and his soul will be satisfied. Not only will the father be satisfied at the work of his son, but the son will be satisfied at those who are now able to be accounted righteous because of him. A spoil of souls is the reward of his suffering. You and I are the prize of his sorrow. Behold my servant, Isaiah says. Fix your eyes on him. 
Brothers and sisters, this is what I call you to this week. This is what the Lord invites you to this week, to rejoice not merely in the baby born in a manger, but the sin-bearing servant on the cross. The servant Jesus, exalted by the Father, rejected by his own, crushed by our iniquities, willingly laying his life down that we might be counted righteous. The baby in a manger, a man of sorrows, the light of the world. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for so rich, so dense, so beautiful a passage such as this. Father, may our hearts be stirred by your word and by your spirit to greater anticipation, to greater longing. We might embrace this God-man Jesus who came and accomplished this for us. Oh, Father, there is no greater news. There is no more powerful news to heal broken lives, to bring light into darkness, to bring joy where there is despair. Fill us to overflowing that we might proclaim high and wide the suffering servant who came for us. This I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Matthew 2, 11, that great passage which happens not in the stable, but years later, And going to the house, they saw the child with Mary and his mother, these men from afar. They fell down, they worshiped him, they opened their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. The the toddler Jesus didn't need any of this stuff. Jesus, high and exalted at the right hand, he doesn't need whatever's in your wallet, but he wants your worship. He wants you to lay aside anything that competes with him and say, no, you are what I need. And so I give of what you've given me. And so I invite you to worship, to worship through the giving of our tithes and offerings this morning. Let's sing together as our ushers come forward.